17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And, the, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob, Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason, and has, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus." And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessal Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from, for Silas and Timothy, to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Aeropagus, saying, we must, we may, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Aropagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown? <clears throat> this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own po poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like, a go like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The time of ignorance God the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were among whom also were Diocinus and Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. I used to argue it's a dead language. No one knows how they actually pronounce it. They, uh, they uh, <clears throat> believe that they have reconstructed how that how it was pronounced. So last week, uh, well, actually, you know, for seventeen weeks now, we've been going through this series. Um, <clears throat> We are on, if you look at Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight elements. We're doing four or five weeks on each of them. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I actually got started about five minutes late this morning. Pretty much everything that could go wrong on a Sunday morning did go wrong this morning. But uh, I could be worse, I guess. So um, last week in Rome, we kind of summed up in Roman two that one of the things that um, that we're trying to emphasize is the contrast between the bad news and the good news. If you use what we call reading the reverse negative, if Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, then it means that if you don't abide in his word, you're a false disciple. Uh, if it says thou shall not kill, that means people kill, and that means life is valuable. So um, we... Um, the gospel is good news, and we wonder sometimes why the world doesn't want to hear our good news in our day and age, and it's partly because everything both in the church and in, in, in the world's culture since the Enlightenment has ceased to, has, has uh, added up to people not uh, believing the bad news. Therefore, they don't see any need for the good news, but the bad news is true news, and uh, so what we looked at when we looked at the attributes of God is that we have too small of a view of God in our mind. So when someone prays the sinner's prayer, when they address it to God, they mean something very much less than the Bible means by God and so forth. As, uh, as we look at the nature of man, there's not much of a doctrine of sin in our day. And so we don't see, we, need, we think we need a little churching up, but we don't think we need a rescuer and so forth. So... Um, the whole idea of magnifying is not to change an object's size. Uh, there's lots of people wearing glasses today in, in the congregation here, and uh, glasses magnify what you're reading uh, or what you're seeing, but it actually just helps you to see what it really is. That's an important uh, concept to understand. Isaiah 59.2 says your sins, uh, your, your, you know, God's, Ear is not so dull that he can't hear, his arm's not so short that he can't save, but our sins have made a separation. And almost all gospel presentations show that with some kind of gap between man, fallen man, and God. And But we underestimate the gap, and we think we can cross it by religion or uh, getting a little churching up or getting a little help. But you, we, we need to be totally rescued. So last week we began looking at uh, 
We had two messages last week as John and Emily were on assignment to Missouri getting some training. And um, last week, uh, we started going through the gospel presentations in the book of Acts uh, and showing that there's no gospel presentations in the New Testament that don't quote heavily from and reference heavily and allude to heavily various concepts through the Old Testament because the apostles saw a continuity between the covenants. God always had an eternal decree and purpose that he's always working toward, and he always wanted to have a people for his own possession. And the gospel is, is uh, uh, designed to form that people. And uh, God doesn't save us in, the, in a radically individualistic way. Some, some people have called a contemporary Christianity radically individualistic. God saves us to be part of his people, his family, to be part of community. That's why restoring uh, more of a community instead of a see you on Sunday thing is not some option or it's not some uh, minor subject. It's the essence of who we're supposed to be in Christ. The New Testament letters don't make any sense if you're not reading them as a community of people uh, that they're being written to. How could, like in Philippians, when Paul tells Euodia and uh, what's the other lady's name? Sintachi, Sutachi, some people do. Uh, <laughs> when he tells them to get along, you know, in, uh, in a programmatic church or whatever, you can just sit further apart. Oh, well, Sintachi or Sutachi, she's in, she's in the choir, so I'm not going to be in the choir. So I don't, you know, but that's not an option in biblical Christianity. It's an option that we really, uh, that we uh, do family and do it well. So we started actually with 1 Corinthians 15, a strange place to uh, start a survey of the, of the gospel presentations in the book of Acts. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is telling us what he taught in Acts 18 to the Corinthians. And um, we, sh we showed how, um, how Paul very clearly said that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he's buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. When he's talking about according to the scriptures, he's not talking about the New Testament scriptures. Corinth is one of the first uh, New Testament books written, Corinthians is, First Corinthians is, and he's not talking about that. He's talking about what we today call the Old Testament scriptures, which are probably more properly named the Hebrew or Jewish scriptures. And he's... Uh, He's talking uh, about that the Jewish scriptures predicted that the Christ would suffer and the Christ would die and the Christ would be buried. That's a huge theme throughout the New Testament because the Jews had misinterpreted the Bible. There were various schools of hermeneutical thought in, in Judaism in the time of Christ, all of which missed the point. That's why they didn't like Jesus when he came. And Jesus made it clear in Luke 24, uh, 24 and 44 or Luke 24 27 and 44 he made it clear that all the Old Testament scriptures concern him all of them you'll hear today some people say that Jesus fulfilled uh, over 300 prophecies in his lifetime that are in the Old Testament um, nothing could be further from the truth he's he fulfilled more than uh, 10,000 predictions of himself in the Old Testament 
The point of the entire Old Testament is to foreshadow Christ. Every figure of the Old Testament is either a a, a, a prototypical Christ or an antitypical Christ or an Christ figure or whatever. They're, all of it foreshadows. Jesus himself is Israel. He is the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. Out of Israel, I called my son. He had, or out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus had to go to Egypt just like Israel had to go to Egypt and so forth. So um, we looked at that, and then we looked at uh, Acts 1-4, where Jesus tells them not to even go start to minister. Don't even start your mission until you wait in Jerusalem to receive power from on high. And he refers to it two ways. He refers to it as the promise of the Father. And then whenever you see the word four, it's the start of verse five. It's right there under Roman numeral three, by the way, second uh, scripture quoted. When you see four, he's redefining what he just said. That's what the therefore is there for, or the for is there for. So <clears throat> he says to wait till you receive the promise of the Father, which means little to us today, but for every Israelite, that was pregnant with meaning. <clears throat> so, and he says, uh, for what this promise of the Father will be is that John baptized with water and you shall be baptized or empowered or submerged in, filled with, uh, cleansed, empowered, the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And uh, so when they, that phrase, the promise of the Father, I, I uh, indented a couple of scriptures there that uh, we didn't cover last week. So instead of just reviewing, sometimes I like to just bring out a further point. We alluded to these scriptures last week, but we didn't actually read them. And um, the, the Old Testament is filled with a concept called the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father is that he would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant he had made with their fathers, but it would, every covenant, uh, as Galatians brings out, once it's ratified, you can't add to it or subtract to it. So the only way to have a new covenant is to fulfill the older covenants. And the new covenant swallows up the older covenant. So two of the most common scriptures used in the New Testament to show this concept of the promise of the Father are Jeremiah 31, 34, where he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, then I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why that phrase is important is Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia in the Septuagint, the old version of the Old Testament. Moses had built an ecclesia for God. The Jews were a called out people called to live according to God's wisdom. The, their view of the law was it was the wisdom of God, and the pagan nations around them didn't have that wisdom. They were groping in the darks. They had no basis for ethics, no basis for marriage, no basis for free enterprise, thou shalt not steal. Uh, the, the, the commandments of God and the, and the case laws of the Old Testament were to enlighten uh, Israel so that Israel could enlighten the nations. And what God is doing is he's saying in Jeremiah that I'm going to build my people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as a new people, the new covenant people, the church, and I'll write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. So he got, um, my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, uh, but this is the covenant which I'll make with the house of Israel 
After those days, declare the Lord's Lord, I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I'll write it, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. They'll not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Priesthood of all believers is based on this concept. For they will know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, these verses are quoted verbatim in Hebrews 8, 8 to 12, to tell us the house of Israel and the house of Judah is now the body of Christ. And uh, that's not a popular idea today. Nevertheless, it's there's a smoking gun, uh, irrefutable evidence if we just study the scriptures. So those same scriptures are alluded to uh, in uh, Luke 22, 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Hebrews, uh, several passages, and so forth. Now, in Luke 22, 20, when Jesus says at the Lord's Supper, it, he says I, that he took the cup, he's not just taking any cup. Of They just happen to have a cup of wine. He's t- taking the Passover cup that was left for Elijah that was left for the fulfillment of all the prophets. And when he takes that cup, he's saying, I'm what all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah prophesied of. I'm the fulfillment of all that. I'm the one the cup is for. Elijah was just a type and a foreshadowing of the prophetic ministry throughout the Old Testament, who now is completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And he then goes on to say, this is the blood of the new covenant. That is, they all thought of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 when he said that. Nobody in the room didn't get that. So Paul says the same language in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. What he had received as the apostolic teaching uh, that, was, that, was, that was practiced on the Lord's Day in the churches, Every week, no, there weren't any Christians who took the, it took the communion supper, say, once a month or twice a year, something like that, until after the Civil War in modern times, because the first day of the week fulfilled the Sabbath, and it was the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation that was, that was in Christ himself. That's why the kingdom is already, even though it's not yet. And he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Because the king of the kingdom is here. In his first event, the greatest eschatological event of Scripture was the first coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. In moving down to the next Scripture, when, when, because uh, I can't dwell on these things too much, you can develop these a lot more, of course, in your own mind and heart. When, when, uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and they, all the uh, people from 16 different nations came running and heard them speaking the mighty deeds of God in their own tongues, not preaching the gospel in their own tongues, but speaking the mighty deeds of God, which it, the gospel is, is actually rooted in the mighty deeds of God, so it is one and the same. However, uh, they're like, these people are drunk, and Peter says, no, we're not drunk, but this is what Joel prophesied. And this promise was that they would all know me and that he'd write their laws. The reason Pentecost happens on Pentecost is because it's the Feast of Weeks 
because it's the celebration of when Moses brought the tablets of the law down from Mount Sinai to, to make covenant with the people of God and to have the law written on tablets of stone. And in the new covenant, Jesus brings the law uh, off, off of Mount Golgotha down to the people, and he writes them upon our hearts and our minds. And uh, when you're regenerated, when you're born again in Christ, uh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are made alive and, and brought back into fellowship with the living God, and he begins a process of writing his law upon your heart and your mind, which he takes much greater when you have subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit. If you go through uh, the book of Acts, you'll often see people that, that get filled with the Holy Spirit that are already filled with the Holy Spirit. So the same people who get filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4 are the same people who got filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 because you, we, we leak. We need to be filled and filled and filled again. So... Um, those same scriptures where he says, I'll pour out my spirit are, are alluded to in all the ones that I have down at the bottom of that referred to in Matthew 9, 17, Acts 2, 33, et cetera. Uh, the underlying ones are particularly important. Then uh, we went over Acts 2 and we talked about, um, if you go back to the beginning of our podcast, our podcasts are, are on the website in uh, chrono reverse chronological order, the most recent one being being first. So you have to go all the way back to the very first podcast under the section called uh, regular Sunday worship or something like that. Sun What's it called? Sunday sermons. The very first sermon that we put on there was, was, was John's um, uh, part zero of his 18 or 19 part series called Christ in the Old Testament. But he's, before he does Christ in the Old Testament, the reason he called it part zero is because he's a computer geek for one thing. But the other reason is, uh, is uh, because he's actually using the New Testament to show that what Peter's sermon was all about was all about explaining to the Israelites that you've been waiting for two ideas. Both of these ideas, you've been completely off base in what you were to be expecting you're expecting Emmanuel, God with us, Yahweh in our midst, and you are expecting Mashiach, or in the, in the Septuagint, Christos, which we get Christ from. You are expecting God to bring these. You weren't expecting them to be the same person. You were expecting an external salvation and a political salvation from the Romans and so forth. But God has now made it manifest. If you look at the word make in the Greek, it means God has made it clear that Jesus is both the Lord that you are expecting and the Christ that you are expecting. And that his whole sermon proves that. That's why it says they were pierced to the heart. They're cut to the quick in the King James because they're like, oh my God, we are faithful Jews, Hellenized Jews that have come. We believe in our, uh, in our God and our faith so much. We've come from all over the Roman Empire for the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three great feasts they were, were supposed to come for. And everything we were expecting, we killed him. We totally missed. We, our, our hermeneutical paradigms were so bad that they actually caused us to kill the fulfillment of everything we were hoping for. Now, I don't know about you, but that would sort of get me a little upset. <laughs> and they're, they're upset. 
and they're, uh, they're at the point of real New Testament conversion. They say, brethren, what should we do? You know, you're really ready to receive Christ when you say, Lord, I'm ready to sign the contract. I know I haven't read it yet. I know that you'll fulfill it in, but I'm trusting in you anyway, and I'm following in you, so I know you'll explain it to me as we go. <laughs> but you can't alter it anyway. You can either accept it or reject it, but you can't alter the covenant. So just sign on the dotted lines, kind of like a, um, you wouldn't want to do that in buying a used car or a house. Or, and don't, don't, you know, like if you ever go to a house closing, because uh, our, our, we live in a nation of covenant breakers, they've gone from, say, 10 places to sign to now you have around like 50 places to sign. And they just keep throwing these documents in front of you. And uh, if you want to really frustrate us, some title, people say, I need to read this first. <laughs> uh, you know, so they want you to just sign and you'll figure out what it means later. <laughs> so uh, that's what the, these guys are so convicted. They say, "What? okay, we'll do anything. Wow, we killed everything we were expecting. Last week we covered Acts 3, and we ended it, and I'm going to skip that at the top of your second page, flip over. Acts 7, I'm going to start with that today, although we touched on that. Now, a lot of people would not call um, Acts 7 um, a gospel presentation because we're used to a gospel presentation, having an invitation, get the lights down low, and create some mood music on the organ and uh, every eye closed and lift your hand up sheepishly so no one knows. And Stephen doesn't do any of this kind of stuff. And so we think it's not a gospel presentation, but it's a proclamation of the gospel. That's what the whole chapter is. And he happens to be proclaiming it to the Sanhedrin. And if you don't understand, Jesus loved the Sanhedrin. Jesus loved the Pharisees. The reason he was so abrasive, the reason he didn't follow how to win friends and influence people, the reason he didn't follow the evangelistic techniques of modern times or anything like that, the reason he ticked them off was because he loved them. And they were so hardened in heart and they were so far God that the most loving thing he could do was punch him in the face with the word of God. And uh, <laughs> be. Uh, make a good distinguishing th thing there, but uh, and uh, and say I love you. There used to be a very uh, challenging preacher that was uh, quite popular in the '60s and '70s, and but named Bob Mumford. He uh, uh, they used to say he gets you laughing so he can punch you in the face without splitting your lip, <laughs> punch you in the teeth without splitting your lip. So. Um, I, I remember when I was a young Christian, I was going through a difficult period, and I was telling my mother about it, and she goes, don't you remember when Bob Mumford says, like, who really wants to follow Jesus, and who really wants the, the kingdom, and who's willing to take up their cross and everything, that you jumped right up and raised your hand and said, yeah, I'm, I'll sign up, let's do it. She said, you, you shouldn't have done that if you, weren't ex if, you weren't ex <laughs> if you weren't expecting that by many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. That's why you're going through a hard time, because you signed up for it. So, okay, thank you, Mother. Don't you hate when your mother tells you the truth? But, uh, <laughs> you know, anybody but my mother, couldn't you have told my dad to tell me? You know? <laughs> uh, so, all right, so in Acts 7, Philip is preaching to the Sanhedrin, and he basically takes them through the whole Old Testament. 
and he demonstrates how Christ is what he said he was in Luke 24, 24, and Luke 24, 44, or let's get it wrong, Luke 24, 27, and Luke 24, uh, 44, he says that, it says, beginning uh, with that scripture, he opened their minds to understand everything about himself in the law, in the Psalms, which is Bible speak for the wisdom literature, and the prophets, which is actually Old Testament way of looking at Joshua through Malachi. So they, um, he's basically saying every book of the Hebrew scriptures is about me. And Stephen does a masterful job of showing that. He just covers the whole history of Israel, demonstrating how Christ is everything in there. And then he says, turn the lights down low, and uh, with no one looking around. No, he, it says, uh, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, gee, he needs to back down. We would say, like, you, you need to chill out a little bit, Stephen. <laughs> uh, and in heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. I don't think they like this message. They're just a, just a hint I have. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers now persecute? Now, hopefully you can go through this and compare, go, go through Acts 7 sometime and compare everything he says to what Jesus says. It's all the same. Remember how Jesus in his great confrontation with the Pharisees in Matthew 21 through 23, and he's talking the eight woes and and uh, woe is this, woe are you for that, woe are you for that, and so forth. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? And you say, if we'd been living in the time of our fathers, we would have honored the prophets. You've actually built monuments and tombs to them. Uh, and Jesus is just saying, you're doing exactly the same thing your fathers did. And I won't have it anymore. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation that produces the fruit thereof. That's what Stephen's saying. He's saying God is building a new covenant people, either get on board or, or, or else. Because whenever you can't, we pray for God's mercy, we pray for God's grace, we reach out and offer forgiveness, and we offer reconciliation and so forth, but the word of God is a sword, and when the sword becomes sharp and clear, People are on one side or another. One of the great myths of our day, I'm always uh, leading young, uh, young people to Christ, and, and it's like, well, I'm kind of, you know, like there was a rock song, Jesus is just all right with me. Like, I, you know, like I'm kind of uh, neutral about this Jesus thing. I'm not a bad person. I'm not against God. You're either, Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no neutrality here. There's no, if you're not taking up your cross, being a disciple, if you're not radically on fire for God, you're, you're, not, you're against him. Stephen is just saying the same stuff Jesus says. So, which, you know, uh, your fathers did not persecute. They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Now, there's Old Testament allusions throughout the speech, but he directly quotes Genesis 12, 1 and 15, 14. All those scriptures that I have listed there in, in Exodus, 
Deuteronomy 18.15, Amos 5.27, and Isaiah 61 through 2. We're going to touch on the Isaiah one uh, later in this message, if I get that far. Uh, still reviewing. Uh, so he's uh, Deuteronomy 8.15, Moses says I, that God will raise up a prophet like myself, and it will come about whoever listens to that prophet but whoever doesn't will be cut off from his people. Remember, that's what Jesus is talking about in the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Whoever doesn't listen and follow Jesus is going to be cut off from the people of God. Now, in Acts 8, we see Philip preaching to the Samaritans in the first 24 verses or so. Starting in verse 26, he begins... He Comes across, you know, the Spirit of the Lord picks him up, puts him on the road to Gaza, which is still there today. And he sees this Ethiopian court official reading from the scriptures. And he's reading from Isaiah 53. So the Lord, in his grace, I don't know why, chose to give Philip a soft one. You know, in baseball, like when Cal Ripken broke the record for Lou Gehrig's consecutive days in a row, the pitcher pitched him a nice fat fastball down the center so he could hit a homer as part of the his, history of that eventful day. Uh, they did that with Derek Jeter's 3,000 hit and so forth. And uh, so like what happens here is the Lord just gives Philip like a fat one. <laughs> like, you I mean, there's probably no easier scripture to preach Jesus from than Isaiah 53 in the whole Testament. Be a little bit like uh, if I, uh, you know, in our uh, discipleship training classes said, okay, I want you to uh, preach Jesus from the Old Testament but I let you start wherever you want. You know, you can take Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. You, you, you know, like your choice where you want to start. And, uh, and uh, that's kind of what happens there. Uh, moving to Acts 10. Even though uh, Paul is, or Paul, Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his household who are God-fearers. That meant they attended temple, but they didn't convert to uh, the attended synagogue. I'm sorry, Ben, I spoke here. Sorry, did not attend temple. They attended synagogue with the word, it means, um, in Greek. They attended synagogue. They knew the scriptures to some degree, but they had not converted to, to, to Judaism because uh, you can't be a Roman centurion and a Jew at the same time. He would have lost his career and so forth. So he's a God-fearer. And uh, Peter makes clear when he's summarizing what he's saying of him, this Jesus I'm talking about, all the prophets, not a couple of the prophets, not a few verses lifted out of the prophets, all the prophets bear witness through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, what Peter actually is having to do is after he sees the vision of the sheets coming down and so forth, while he's on the 30-mile trip from Simon the Tanner's house to Joppa to Cornelius' house, he has to rethink the whole Old Testament in light of Christ in a deeper way than he had done up till now. And he's like, he's not being led to understand something that wasn't in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit never does that. But the Holy Spirit often leads you to understand everything you've been missing in the Scriptures all along because of, we all have wrong paradigms that blind us from the actual message of Scripture. And so Peter is, this is, um, 
I forget how many years. I'm I got to do the math. I think it's 14 years or so after after Pentecost. Um, I'd have to go back and rethink that. But he's down the road a while. He's the head apostle of the church in Jerusalem, and he's missing the major point of the Old Testament in his mind and heart. That in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Hundreds and hundreds of scriptures that talk about how Israel is to be the light to all the coastlands, to all the nations, and so forth. And that, he, that God would make his people be all the peoples of the earth every tongue and tribe and nation and so forth. So Peter himself is actually rethinking the whole Old Testament because in light of Christ and in light of his universal global mission, he, di he didn't get it up till then, even after Pentecost, even after leading the church for many years. And we, today, we, you know, that's one of the things that hinders us the most. We sort of have this know-it-all thing today where we think, you know, uh, you know, I grew up in the church. I know the Bible. I've been to Bible college and, you know, I've taken Bible classes and so forth. And we don't realize, as Jesus said to the Laodicean church, we're blind and rested and naked. We, we need our eyes open to what's been in there all along. That's the whole point of Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, past time already going to go keep going. I, they can, you can shoot me later. Uh, Acts 17, Paul speaks to three groups of people, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. He refers to Daniel 2, Daniel 9, Jeremiah 23. Uh, now, interestingly, when he speaks to the Athenians, he doesn't quote in the same kind of, I'll put it in quotes, chapter and verse kind of way uh, that he normally does. But if you look at his sermon, he builds, it, he builds it on three major points of the Old Testament. Now, I don't have time for all of them. So I'm going, you know, he quote, he basically uh, recounts uh, creation. And he uh, recounts uh, a very controversial subject that God made from one blood, meaning one man. He's saying there really was a, a prototypical couple, Adam and Eve. Now, the, you know, we think that Darwin started evolution. Nothing could be further from the truth. All fallen men, all ancient cultures were evolutionary. I have a good book you could borrow in here called Evolution from Thales to Darwin. And it goes through the history of evolution in Greek philosophy. These men were evolutionists. So when Paul says God has made all men to be of one blood, they thought that certain races were inferior to them because all racism has to be based in evolution. You can't, be, you can't really be a creationist and be a racist. Unfortunately, there have been many people who've said they're creationists that are still racist. But that actually go back to point one. That means they're actually not creationist. So Paul starts with talking about the creator God. Now, we have trouble understanding this in modern times because modern people have trouble with the concept of God, God being creation because of their anti-supernatural bias, and they don't think God is capable of it. But that wasn't the problem for the ancient people. Ancient people thought the material world was evil, 
They were Gnostic. They were dualists. They were, that's why you call it Neoplatonism sometimes. They thought the spiritual things are good and ideas are good, but the body is evil and base and creation is base and so forth. They didn't believe Genesis 1.31. When God got done making it all, he said it's very good. And the concept that God became a man and that God created it all, they didn't, they didn't have trouble with it from a, from a supernatural point of view. They had trouble with that concept from an ethical point of view. They were like, oh, my God, you're saying God took on a nasty human body and he ate food and he died this nasty, horrible death? They couldn't, they couldn't wrap their minds around it. That's why Paul starts with these three basic Old Testament concepts, the third of which is that God does not dwell in temples made by man. He's quoting Isaiah, the verse we had up higher there, uh, on the page, Isaiah 61 and 2. And Isaiah 61 and 2, two is actually quoting uh, 1 Kings 8.27. When Solomon is praying over the temple and says, I know that we've made this temple for you, but heaven is your throne. This temple can't contain you. You don't dwell in temples made by men. Isaiah is just quoting that when he prophesies Isaiah 61. And Paul is quoting that the same as Stephen had quoted that. I really want to finish today, so I'm going to just be late. I'm sorry. Acts uh, 28, because next week I really want to go on to uh, why this is so important. This, a lot of people have the idea, uh, there's only one, I've only been able to find one evangelical book that addresses this, uh, Scott McKnight's very good book called The King Jesus Gospel. Uh, and there's, I don't know if any, anyone else that's addressing this in the whole body of Christ, sadly, but it's not just because they were speaking to Hellenized Jews and Jews and to God fears and so forth. It's because you can't understand the message. And that's what we're going to see next week. Uh, just to finish up in Acts 28, Paul gets arrested. God had always shown him he'd go to Rome. He just didn't really realize he was going to go in chains. <laughs> but he finally gets to Rome, like he says in Romans 1, that, I, you know, I'm coming. <laughs> and uh, he didn't expect to arrive uh, with a military escort in chains. But, uh, he's, you know, he doesn't mope and go, oh, my God, I'm under arrest. What, you know, he basically says, okay, I can't go to the synagogue. So he sends... He sends people to the synagogue to say, come hear what I got to tell you. <laughs> and uh, so they do. And he tells them all, it says he speaks for two years about the kingdom of God and, and teaches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says he explains uh, them about the kingdom, John, trying, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from the book of Galatians. Oh, I'm sorry. From the Gospels. from Moses and the prophets. Now, again, the Israelites at that time believed that Joshua through Malachi was the prophets, uh, except for the five wisdom books. They would have called those the Psalms. He recounts the history of Israel. He recounts the law. He recounts the prophets, and he's showing them how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Now, we're going to analyze and systemize this next week, and we're going to 
look at the hermeneutical principles employed by Jesus, by Stephen, by the Jerusalem 12 apostles, and by Paul as to why this matters, why this is the, a critical make-it-or-break-it issue for the history of Christianity going forward. The church must recover that we cannot proclaim the gospel apart from proclaiming God's actions in history, his eternal decree. The you know liberal mainstream Protestantism and liberal, liberal Catholicism believe it's just mythopoeic stories. There's, uh, the conservatives have reacted by reducing it, uh, but actually the full message of it, uh, the full message of God is about his historical acts in history, which according to Hebrews 13, 20, the blood of the eternal covenant, he decided to do before he created man, before he made the time-space continuum, All of this was worked out in the eternal covenant of God, sometimes called the covenant of redemption by covenant theologians. And it matters profusely. And so we're going to look at something that sounds a little big right now, won't be that hard. Apostolic induction, their their way they looked at interpreting the scriptures versus the reformers' covenant deduction, which is similar, versus the whole uh, modern... Re, 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 uh, reduction in why it matters greatly. Amen.